Amen. Do you believe what you're seeing? An almighty fortress, you go before us. Nothing can stand against the power of our God. You shine in the shadows. You win every battle. Nothing can stand against the power of our God. Has our God got you in a corner where you say, I can't do this? No. He can do all things. And we just said, I'm a citizen of heaven. And that we've been learning about being part of the family. We have that inheritance that we can go to Daddy God and say, Daddy, I need help. I need help. And the enemy's going to try to tell you that what he can't do. I want to remind you, he wins every battle. He's defeated Satan at the cross. And this morning he gives us the invitation because at the cross, when they laid those stripes across his back, that was for our healing. There's nothing too big. There's nothing too small. We're going to sing this next song. There's going to be those who will come and pray the prayer of faith with you. And believe, because God can do the impossible. There's nothing too big for our God.
Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Father. Yes, Lord. Lord, that your mercies, compassions, they fail not, but they're new every day. Thank you that your steadfast love endures forever. As we are gathered here this morning, and so many of us have been walking with you for so many years, and over those years we have seen you move those proverbial mountains. We've seen you make a way where there is no way. Sometimes as the circumstances of life mount up around us, we lose perspective. Lord, I pray this morning that we would once again remember your faithfulness to us in the days gone by. Because we know that you're the same yesterday, today, and forever. And you'll do it again. There's individuals who stand here today who've come for prayer. Lord, they need mountains moved. God, they need a way made where there is no way. I pray for members of our congregation in the hospital room today. We pray for Carol, recovering from the heart, open heart surgery. Lord, that you would just impart your strength into her spirit today. We thank you for the, the surgery went well, but now the, that process of healing and dealing with the pain and dealing with all the other issues that go along with that major surgery. God, that right at this moment in that room today, she would experience something of your presence, something of your power, something of your love. Pray for Lonnie, losing of the leg because of things going on in his body that aren't right, and praying for the other leg, God, that the blood clots would be dissolved and health would be restored. Lord, as he's there, that he would experience something of your grace. That he would remember moments in his life when you have intervened and his prayer would be, Lord, do it again. Do it again. Because you're still God. You still reign. You reign over everything and you have everything under control. Lord, may your peace be our portion today. As we open the word, may we hear you speak to us that we would be touched, transformed because we've heard and obeyed your word. Thank you, Lord, for all of these things in Jesus' precious name. And everyone who agrees said, Amen. and all opposed, hold your peace. Good morning. Good morning. There we go. We're glad that you're here this morning on this beautiful day in fall. Summer's gone. Fall has arrived, which reminds me that um, the Mary Martha group will have a trunk and treat event taking place on the 29th, I think it is, um, on Saturday night, and they're looking for donations of candy and people who would volunteer to uh, be a light in the darkness and open up your trunk and fill it full of the candy that people bring in. Oh, I forgot, boys and girls, you want to go to Kids on Worship, you're dismissed at this point in time. Um, something about old-timers disease. <laughs> Hopefully it's not Alzheimer's, but some-timers. Appreciate the boys and girls being here. Appreciate if you bring 
candy donations. There's a barrel out there, a little brown barrel out there. Fill it full and keep your eye on Justice to make sure he's not trick-or-treating too early. <laughs> John Stott wrote in his writings soon after returning from a trip to India about a girl that he heard about in India. A little Hindu girl had been brought up in a very strict Hindu family who'd come in contact with some Christians. And somebody asked her one day what she thought a Christian was. She thought for a moment, and then she replied, Well, as far as I can see, a Christian is somebody who's different from everybody else. Let me run that by you. As far as I can see, a Christian is somebody who's different from everybody else. Oh, that that would be true. That's the essence of what John the Beloved is writing about in 1 John, this letter that he's written to the church in Asia Minor at large, and probably specifically, first of all, to go to Ephesus. We believe it was to be circulated in all those churches. I'm not sure it's a letter or a sermon or a combination of a letter and a sermon, but it's the heart of a pastor writing to correct the heresy that is cropping up within that that young church at the end of the first century. Uh, the beginning of the heresy that uh, led to Gnosticism that became full-blown uh, a little way a ways later down the road, and I believe still exists today. Um, these people who believe that they are superior because they have a superior knowledge about the things of God, and that it's only this knowledge that saves you, they don't believe in the deity of Jesus Christ. They believe that the Spirit came upon a man born of Mary and Joseph until they went to the cross and the Spirit lifted because in their estimation, God could not die. So they really don't believe in the resurrection. They don't believe much of what the Bible says. Um, but they had this going on, this, this new gospel. If you know this, and they felt like... Because this body is born in sin, shaped in sin, shaped in iniquity, it's irredeemable, and there's nothing you can do about it. The body cannot be saved, so in your body, do whatever you want, as long as you have the special knowledge that we have. And come and join our group, we'll give you the special knowledge, but you can live any way you want to. And John is coming against that very strongly, going back to the foundations of what... Uh, Salvation is all about what Jesus came to do. He likened their belief system to somebody walking in the dark. He said, God is light. And if we're in fellowship with God, we walk in light. But if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and we are walking in the darkness. And he keeps coming back to that darkness and light situation. He's talking about these people with this heresy that they are walking in the darkness. They have not really seen the light and they're not walking in the light. We come to verse 15 in the second chapter of 1 John, where John gives a very direct command. A command that I believe is backed by the authority of a man who walked with Jesus. A man who embraced Jesus, physically touched Jesus, a man who was at the cross when Jesus died, 
a man who went into the empty tomb, a man that Jesus spoke to several times after the resurrection. With that kind of authority, he speaks a command to them. Not only that, he's a man who's walked with God, walked with Jesus as a faithful apostle for about 60 years by this time in his life. He's about 90 or above. And so this is a man with biblical spiritual authority and he gives us this command in verse 15 do not love the world or the things in the world if anyone loves the world the love of the father is not in him do not love the world or the things of the world there's a couple of major points in these three verses that we're going to look at 15 16 and 17 number one you cannot mix together love for the world and love for god you cannot mix together love for the world and love for God. They are mutually exclusive. If you love the world, you will forfeit the love for God. I put another note that's on the board that's not on your notes. The human was designed by God to love and serve only one master. The human was designed by God to love and serve only one master master later on we'll come to another verse where jesus speaks to that that's a rather heavy statement though isn't it you can't love the world and love god at the same time so the next logical question then is what is the world what is john talking about after all did not john write in his gospel that god so loved the world and now he's telling us not to love the world because of the poverty of language, many times one word will have more than one meaning or purpose. And that's such is the case in this instance. For example, our word love, and I'm not going to really talk about the word love today, but I'll just briefly say that love. I love to go hunting. I love to eat pizza. I got an amen. I love tomatoes. I told you that last week. And now I've been eating tomatoes for breakfast, lunch, and dinner because of your, your greatness and goodness to us. Thank you so much for the tomatoes that came in ripe off the vine. They're so much better than the ones I bought at the store that they're waiting in the fridge. Hopefully they'll last until I have the rest of that bag gone. It's getting close. Today I'm going to talk about filet mignon. I'm just kidding. But, you know, I love pizza. I love to go hunting. People say they love their car. And then we say, I love my wife. Now, are those all on an equal plane in terms of meaning of the word love? They better not be. <laughs> now, I know some people love their dog more than their spouse, and that's, no, that's wrong. But, uh, you know, talk about the poverty of language one word having several connotations this word world sometimes in the scripture the word world describes the planet that we live on for example in psalms 24 1 says the earth is the lord's and the fullness thereof the world and those who dwell therein the earth the world he created in the beginning god created the heaven and the earth I think it's Psalms 96 is another place where it talks about the world that God created. 
other places, like John 3.16. What's John 3.16? For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. When you look at that and, and you diagram that sentence, that world tells us, that word world has to do with people. Whoever believes, he loved people. Whoever believes. It wasn't the planet, it was the people on the planet. So in that case, it, it speaks of, of God's love for people. When we get to verse 16, he helps us understand a little bit better what the world means in this particular verse. And in a moment, I'll help you to unpack that real quickly, if you believe that. <laughs> but first, I want us to see what our, what our attitude, our posture should be towards this world that we're going to talk about not loving in a moment. In Matthew chapter 5, Jesus gives these, this command. Or he actually just says this. You are the salt of the earth. But if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people put a lamp or light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Amen. We are the salt and the light of the world. We are the salt and the light of the world. Now, when Jesus speaks about salt in the context of Matthew chapter 5, he's concerned about far more than proper seasoning on whatever you're cooking today for lunch. Salt was used for preservation of food. They did not have the refrigerators and the ice boxes and the freezers that we have in our homes. So to preserve meat, cover it with salt. They cure it with salt. Save fish, cover it with salt. He said, you are the salt of the world. There needs to be something about the way that you influence the world that slows down the decay of the world around us. You are the salt of the world. Then he says, you're the light of the world. You are the light of the world. Now, when he's talking about world, it can't possibly be the planet Earth because he put a light in the heavens to light the earth. But you are the light of the world. And we'll get to that world, world in just a few moments. He said, it's like a candle. You don't put it under a bushel, but you put it on a lampstand. So it drives out the darkness in that place. That is to be our posture as we deal with the world. We are there to be an influence for the positive. We are there to be a light to show the way. He said, a city on a hill cannot be hidden. And I don't know if you've been driving down the highway at some point in time, and you see the lights of a city that's on a hill in the distance, in the dark, and you assume, well, we're almost there. We're almost there. 
An hour later, you're almost there. But that light shining into the darkness says, hey, there's a place of civilization. Here's a place to find refuge. Here's a place to find food. And when he's saying, you are the light of the world, by the way we live our life, it ought to be like shining in the darkness. Hey, here's a place to find life. Here's a place to find shelter. Here's a place to find the fulfillment that will only be found in Jesus Christ. You are the salt of the earth. You're the light of the world. Look at Jesus' words in John chapter 17, the great prayer. If there's ever a Lord's Prayer, this is it. The other one's probably the disciples' prayer. Our Father who art in heaven, he, that's how he told us how to pray. But his prayer... John 17, as he's on his way to the Garden of Gethsemane, he stops and he begins to pray to the Father, I've glorified you, now glorify me. And then he begins to pray for the 11 guys around him. And then he prays for you because he said, I pray for all of those who are going to believe what these guys have to say. How many believe? He prayed for you, he prayed for me. Verse 15, he said this, I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I'm not of the world. Sanctify them in truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. We are not of this world. Our citizenship is someplace else. But we are sent into this world. We are sent into it. Our citizenship's in heaven, but he's left us here for a purpose. He said, even as you sent me, Father, so I send them. Why did God send Jesus? Why did Jesus come to earth? The answer is to reconcile the world to himself. To show the world, show people the love of the Father. To show the world what God was really like and how much he wanted to heal and restore and empower for life. Jesus now sends us into the world to be him, to share the love of the Father, to be ministers of reconciliation, to tell people that Jesus loves them, died for them, rose from the grave for them, and is coming back again for them if they'll be washed in the blood of the Lamb. Amen. 2 Corinthians 5, 18. 17 is, if you're in Christ, you're a new creature Old things are passed away, all things become new. But verse 18 said this, All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. We are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us. You and I will be the only picture of Jesus that some people will ever see. As the United States sends ambassadors to foreign nations, God has sent you as an ambassador into a foreign world. 
We have been sent to be salt, to be light, to be ambassadors of the kingdom of heaven. We have been sent to represent Jesus and not ourselves. On the same night that he prayed that great priestly prayer, before he prayed that prayer, back in John chapter 15, while they're on their way, and he's talking about the vine and the fruit and all of that, knowing that in 24 hours, these guys' world is going to be totally turned upside down. They don't understand what's going to happen. But he says in verse 18, If the world hates you, know it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. Because you're not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. But all these things they will do to you on account of my name, because they do not know him who sent me. Point number three, we can expect to suffer persecution in this world. I didn't hear one amen or one hallelujah or so be it Jesus. Jesus came to love people, to heal people, to mend broken hearts, to forgive sins, to do good things. I read somewhere in this book that everywhere he went, he did good. That's King James language that I learned as a kid. Everywhere he went, he did good. Yet there were people who hated him. People who persecuted him. If we are living for Jesus and taking the right posture in the world, we should expect that somewhere along the line, there will be people who reject us. Possibly even persecute us for our faith and for our stand. It's been going on for ages all around the world. All around the world. There's more martyrs being martyred, martyred for their faith today than ever before in nations of the world. Right now, in this nation, this is the most violent time against Christianity that I've seen in my lifetime from our culture against us. Hating people who stand up for biblical morality and Jesus Christ. It's going to go on until the trumpet sounds. Jesus said, if they hate me, they're going to hate you. Yet we are called not to go create com communes in the back hills of Virginia. We are called to influence the world as salt and light and stand firm in our faith. Back to verse 15 of 1 John. Do not love the world or the things of the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eye, and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. So here he tells us that he's not referring to the planet. Because he said everything in this world is not from the Father. The Father created the planet. 
the Father created people. Right? What John is referring to is a way of living. When he talks about do not love the world, he's talking about do not love this way of living. Do not love this way of thinking. He's talking about a lifestyle that we first see portrayed for us back in Genesis chapter 4. After Cain killed his brother Abel. And God spoke to him. In Genesis 4 verse 16, it says this. Then Cain went away from the presence of the Lord. He went away from the presence of the Lord. Go back. Don't get in such a hurry, please. Last service, I had to tell the guy to put it forward. This guy, he wants me to finish. Thank the Lord for volunteers. Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. Cain knew his wife, and she conceived and bore Enoch. When he built the city, he called the name of the city after the name of his son Enoch. Cain went away from the presence of the Lord. Now you can go to that one. He went away from the presence of the Lord. He went out from the presence of the Lord, is the way another translation says it. And this is not in your notes, but I put it, and he began to build a city without God. He built a city without God. He went away from the presence of God, and he built a city opposed to what God had said would be his lot in life. God said to Cain, you're going to be a marked individual, and you're always going to be a fugitive and a wanderer. Cain cried out, people are going to kill me. And he said, I'm going to put a mark on you, and I'm going to tell people who are coming up to leave you alone, not to take vengeance, but you're going to be a fugitive and a wanderer. He leaves the presence of God, goes and builds a city. He went out from the presence of the Lord. This is the kind of lifestyle John is talking about. A lifestyle without God. A lifestyle without God. Men doing what they want to do. Men doing as what they please, what's right in their own eyes. Men trying to build their own kingdom according to their plan and not God's plan. Every one of us has a worldview, a grid through which we view the world around us, the, that we view life. There are two dominant worldviews in America. Not only two, but there are two dominant ones. The two I want to talk about, the first one is a secular worldview. A secular worldview. When Barack Obama was President of the United States, he made a speech for all the world to hear that the United States is no longer a Christian nation. It is now a secular nation. Remember when he said that? Trying to say, because we're a secular nation, we're doing away with all of the religious stuff that has to do with bigotry and all of that, and we're going to be tolerant and accepting people. 
What does it mean to be a secular nation? If you look up the, the definition of secular in one of the dictionaries that I have, secular means not religious, sacred, or spiritual. Not religious, sacred, or spiritual. What's the model for the United States of America? In God we trust. That's the national motto given to us by our forefathers. In God we trust. But the president took note of where a major portion of our culture is gone to a place where we don't want any religion, sacred or spiritual thing to be part of our culture. A secular culture. You see, the secularists believe that all of us are born good. Intrinsically, we are good. We're masters of our own fate. We get to determine the boundaries of our achievements and our own knowledge and unconstrained by moral standards except for the ones that we want to determine for ourselves, the ones that feel good. Secularism is portrayed over and over in the Bible. And one of the places in Judges chapter 17, verse 6, this phrase appears more than once in Judges. It says this, In those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right, in his own eyes. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. In a nutshell, that is a secular world view. A secular lifestyle. I don't need God. I am a God. I'm in charge of my own destiny. The worldview we want to live by is a Christian worldview. A Christian worldview. A Christian worldview believes that God is sovereign, that he's active in everyday life. Christian worldview believes in an all-powerful God who created the heaven and the earth. And this living, omnipotent God has all knowledge, and because of his great love for us, he established absolute morals for our protection. He's holy. He's loving. He's personal. And what has happened over the course of the century, over and over in humanity? And part of what you see in the book of, in the Old Testament, is this picture over and over, the children of Israel. They start out with this clear perspective of God is God and we are his people. But then they begin to embrace some of the philosophy of the secular society. Because there's things there that look intriguing. They look like they bring satisfaction and so they began to try to marry the two of them, and pretty soon they drift away from serving God, and they began to serve idols. When John says, do not love the world, he's talking about a secular worldview. He's talking about the philosophy of life that Cain chose to live by, leaving the presence of God and doing his own thing. Now, who do you suppose created a secular worldview? Who do you suppose is behind that kind of lifestyle? Who is it that propagates the philosophy of the world that says, let's leave God out of this? 
Three times in the Gospel of John, Jesus referred to him as the prince of this world. Who was that? Lucifer, the fallen angel. He is the prince of this world. Satan has his kingdom of darkness, and he's doing everything he can to keep people from walking into the kingdom of light and to be his children. God, or Jesus said to the Pharisees, you're of your father the devil. You're walking in darkness. They were as religious as the day was long, but they weren't doing what God wanted them to do. They were doing what they wanted God their way. Remember the first temptation in the Garden of Eden. Eve, God didn't really mean what he said, that you die if you eat this fruit. In fact, if you eat this fruit, you will be like God. And what's the inference of that? If I'm like God, then I don't need God. Because I have all this power and authority in me. I can do whatever I want, wherever I want, however I want, with whomever I want. Do not love the world and the things of the world. George Beverly Shea. Anybody remember that name? All the old people do. Because he was a man born in the early part of 1900s. And in the end of the 1920s, he entered Huffton College in New York in 1928 to study music. He wanted some good training to train his voice. But financial problems, what took place in 1929? crash of the stock market. Are you watching the stock market? Um, the crash. Because of financial things, he had to leave school early. He found a job as a clerk for an insurance company and continued his vocal training while living with his parents in New York. He sang in churches all over the city for the, and for the local Christian radio station in that place where he lived. One day, a director for a network radio station heard Bev Shea sing. And he arranged for him to have an audition for a part with the Lynn Murray Singers. The Lynn Murray Singers had a national radio program. He was excited about the possibility of singing nationwide. Now remember, 1929-30, there was no television. Everything was radio. He would be heard by large numbers of people. He had a chance to make big money. So he went to the audition and was offered the job. But there was one requirement that came with this job. If he sang with the Lynn Murray singers, he could not sing for Jesus anymore. He agonized over the decision because it was 1929, 1930, and the Depression. His family needed money. But on a Saturday night, his mother found a poem written by Ray F. Miller. She wrote out a copy of the poem and placed it on the piano. On Sunday morning, Bev Shea found the poem, and a tune popped into his head that went along with the poem. He wrote it down, and in the morning, he sang that poem to the melody that he created 
for the very first time. made a decision not to sing with that group to sing only for Jesus you know who he met not very long after that decision some preacher from South Carolina by the name of Billy Graham and for years and years and years Bev Shea stood on the platform all around the world and sang to the glory of Jesus Christ. Even though he said, 
I'd rather have Jesus than men's applause. I'd rather be faithful to his dear cause. I'd rather have Jesus than worldwide fame. I'd rather be true to his holy name. And because he made that choice, God gave him the desires of his heart. Well, I was preparing, thinking about what he did. I remember a song that I learned at a worship conference by their pastor was one of those kind of people that he could write songs in an instant. And this is one, I like it because it's really simple. And I want you to sing it with me. I love you more than anything I love you. More than anything I love you. not love the world and the things of the world how does that work out how do we apply that to our lives after all we are believers and we're not of the world in this passage he gives to us three ways that Satan tempts us tries to get us to love the wrong things or to look at things with the wrong kind of love let me say this. When John says, do not love the world or the things of the world, the issue is not so much about those things. And the reason I say that is because people, we, you know, we have a tendency to, we want to define all of these things in the world, and we soon become like Pharisees listing a bunch of things. If you do these things, you're out. It's not about the things. It's about the attitude of my heart. You listening? It's about the attitude of my heart. 
It's my attitude towards the things of the world. That's where it comes down to. The first one is the desires of the flesh. If you read other translations, I think the King James says the lust of the flesh. The NIV says the cravings of sinful man. The lust of the flesh. These are the basic urges that have been built into us in our natural biology, the way God created us. The need for food. The need for drink. The need for sexual gratification. The need for survival, preservation. In themselves, there's nothing wrong with any of those things. In fact, they are necessary for life. They are absolutely necessary. And when we use them according to the parameters that God gave them to us, we live an abundant life, a full life, a life to the max. It's when these urges become my master, when I allow them to become out of control and I'm enslaved to them, God gave us the natural desire to eat food, hunger. I won't talk about too long. Some of your stomachs are already growling because of the time of day it is. That natural hunger. There's nothing wrong with being hungry. Because that's, you need to have fuel in your body to live. The problem becomes when I begin to live to eat rather than eat to live. Daniel and Babylon, they were living in a culture where it was all about the cravings of the flesh in terms of the delicacies that we're going to eat, the rich foods that we're going to eat. And... Um, you know, it's not a very far trip from eating to live to the sin of, do I say it? Of gluttony. Eating more than we need. Or eating only the best, the softest, the most flavorsome. That's what John's speaking of. God made us with a need to have shelter as human beings. We all need to have a, a place to live. I believe that. But then there's this craving of the flesh that we want to have the most luxurious. We want to have the, 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 the best and the constant and the bigger and better. The lust of the flesh. God gives us this wonderful function of the act of sexual union. For procreation, but the way God created it goes far beyond procreation. It goes for the intimacy and, and the joy of sharing intimacy with a, a man and a woman in the confines of marriage. It is the cherry on top. But when we allow that, that sexual need to go outside of the bounds of marriage, then we got problems. In fact, there's so many people today who are literally addicted to sex because of the pornography that is so rampant in our culture. And it gets in their mind, and, and it, it's like... The drugs, it's like the alcohol, and their mind becomes dependent upon that fix. And people, now we've gotten, we took what God made to be beautiful, a picture of the union of Christ with the church, and it becomes a, a tool of the devil to destroy lives. The lust of the flesh. 
Craving for food leads to gluttony. Craving for sexual gratification leads to promiscuity and sexual addiction. Craving for alcohol can lead to alcoholism. You get the picture. Satan would have you believe that if something feels good, it tastes good, it makes you feel good, then don't deny yourself. You owe it to yourself to have this pleasure. We live in a culture that lives for the cravings of the flesh. Some it's sexual conquest. Others it's the next buzz, the next high. Whether it be a, a bottle of liquid that they ingest or something they snort up their nose or a shot they put into their veins. Those are the obvious things. But there's a whole lot more subtle cravings of the flesh that Americans have, like entertainment. Games, movies, smartphones. Be careful, Pastor. <laughs> the craving for the next vacation, that craving for the next thrill. I cannot believe some of the things that I've seen thrill seekers do just for the next adrenaline rush. And every once in a while, one of them would be killed. And somebody feels sorry for him, and I'm thinking, the scripture says you shall not tempt the Lord your God. <laughs> but they get this craving, and there are people just hooked on adrenaline fixes. And it's something that the enemy, the culture of the world, without God, has caused to go out of bound. Now, listen, uh, I'm not against vacations. I'm not against entertainment. God's not against vacations. Jesus said, come away and let's rest a while. Just don't make your vacation 52 Sundays instead of just a week or two, okay? <laughs> the way of the world is I'd rather be golfing. I'd rather be fishing. I'd rather be hunting. I'd rather be skydiving. I've never seen one said I'd rather be working. I don't think I've seen one. I'd rather be reading my Bible. I'd rather be praying for souls. I'd rather be fasting. Again, I'm not saying don't enjoy these things. God gave these things for us to enjoy within the confines of. Let your moderation be known in everything, the scripture says. Be on guard, for the enemy would like to use your natural desires to sidetrack you from your relationship with God. Someone from the secular's point of view Objects, you're too legalistic, you're taking away my rights. I'm the master of my own destiny. Do not fence me in. When you had kids, did you ever buy a fishbowl and put a goldfish or two inside that fishbowl? Somebody walks by that fishbowl and says, it's really not fair to those fish to be in the confines of that bowl. I think I'll just smash it and let them go free. What happens to the fish that you've let go outside of those boundaries? You say that's kind of a stupid illustration. But you know what? The scripture says there's a way that seems right to a man. But the end is death. Don't fence me in, God, with a bunch of rules. He didn't fence you in with a bunch of rules. He fenced you in to protect you from your own self. To protect us from our stupidity. To protect us from living the way of the world without God. Number two, the desire of the eyes. The desire of the eyes or the lust of the eyes. 
the way the King James says it. That's seeing something and having this overwhelming desire to have it. When I was a young man, the bumper sticker that was on top of four, on the back of four-wheel drives that were lifted about, you know, four feet off the air and had big, great big tires, it said, he who dies with the most toys wins. And I still see people trying to do, they don't have the bumper sticker, but they're trying to, pr to prove that as I watch some of the vehicles drive down the road and some of the things that we buy and, you know, We've got to be careful that our hearts don't get sucked away into the way the world thinks. Living for the accumulation of possessions. Now here, the issue is not wealth and poverty. The issue is our attitude about wealth and poverty. The reality is, God gave some people, some of you, the gift of being able to gather money in order that you can be a blessing to the world. That you can be a blessing to people who do not have that ability because of disabilities and, and situations in their life. He gave those things to you so you can facilitate missionaries going around the world to preach the gospel. There's nothing wrong with having money and possessions, providing money and possessions don't have you. Abraham was a man of God, very wealthy, because of the blessing of the Lord. Amen? Amen? Very wealthy. Yet there was nothing in his life he wouldn't give to God when God asked for it. There was nothing in his life he wouldn't give to God when God asked for it. In Genesis chapter 22, you read the story where God comes to Abraham... Isaac is now a teenager. The boy that he prayed for for 25 years to be born because God promised. And now he's a young man. And God says, Abram, Abraham, take your son Isaac, the one you love, to a mountain I will show you and offer him there as a burnt offering. Early in the morning, he rises up, they saddle the donkey, they take the servants, the wood, and they go for three days. And then they walk up the mountain, he puts him on the altar that the two of them built together. He binds him, lays him there. Son, God said he wanted you, and I'm going to give him back. I'm going to give you back to God. And he's ready to kill him. Of course, God stops him, the ram. But the thing is, Abraham was willing to give God whatever God asked for. Which brings me to the application question. It's getting heavy now. Is there anything that I have I'm not willing to give God if he asks for it? Is there anything I have in my life I'm not willing to give God if he asks for it? Remember the man in Mark chapter 10 who came to Jesus, good master, what must I do to inherit eternal life? He said, keep the commandments. I've done that. I'm on my way. One thing you lack Go and sell all you have. Give it to the poor. And come back and follow me. And the man went away sorrowful. Why? Because he had great wealth. And could not give it up. The wealth had him. Jesus wasn't saying that we all need to give up all our money. But he was saying this. 
he needs to be number one. And if he asked for it, it's his. Otherwise, we've been consumed by the lust of the eye. Be on guard. Be on guard. Matthew 6, 24 said this, No one, this is Jesus, no one can serve two masters. Either will hate, hate the one, love the other, or be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. I told you, God said, created us so we can only serve one master. And that's what Jesus said. Number three, the pride of life. The boasting of what he has and does. The pride of life. The way of the world is a way of pride. Pride that must outshine my neighbor, that has to have a house a little bigger, a car a little shinier, a suit a little finer, an income a little larger. Boasting of what you have and what you've done and what you're doing. Now, I've met some folks that have an eye problem, a very severe eye problem. Are you tracking with me? I did this. I have this. I, I, I. Basically, that is a desire to awaken envy or adulation from other people. When we talk about the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes, that, that's an inward thing. Uh, trying to do something to be satisfied in the way God didn't want us to be satisfied. But they're directed towards us. And only... Um, but the pride of life cannot exist except as it relates to others. It seeks to create a sense of envy, of rivalry, of burning jealousy, an air of superiority over others to give us pleasure of how wonderful I am. It's the desire to outshine, to outrank someone else. Pride of life is also the kind of pride that says this, I have made myself, I am a self-made man, I am a self-made woman. Everything that you see around me, I earned it by the sweat of my brow. I worked for it, I accumulated it, it's mine. Look what I have done. Do you know that if it wasn't for the grace of God, you would not have the oxygen to take into your lungs today? If it was not for the grace of God, you would not be able to exhale that carbon dioxide so you could take in more oxygen and keep on breathing. Whatever job you had, if it were not for the grace of God, you would not have had it. Whatever business you created, if it were not for the grace of God, you would not have created it. You said, I did it myself. You did it because God allowed it. Amen. God provided for it. There was a man in the Bible who had that mindset. I'm a self-made man. Luke 12, 16, a parable that Jesus talked about. He told him this parable, the ground of a certain man produced a good crop. He thought to himself, what shall I do? I have no place to store my crops. Then he said, this is what I will do. I'll tear down my barns and build bigger ones, and there I will store my grain and my goods. And I'll say to myself, you have plenty of good things laid up for many years. Take life easy, eat, drink, and be merry. God said to him, you fool. This very night your life will be demanded from you. Then who will get what you prepared for yourself? This is how it will be with anyone who stores up things for himself, but is not rich toward God. Is not rich toward God. 
Beware of pride. Beware of living out your life in the context of competing with anyone and everyone around you. That's the way of the world. That's loving the world and the things of the world. As Christians, we must not succumb to the temptation to compare ourselves with another, to compete with another. It leads to pride that can hinder our relationship with the Father. It leads to pride that can hinder our relationship with the Father. You know what God does with the people who are proud? The scripture said God resists the proud. Now I don't know about you, but that's not a place I want to be in. Because I don't think that I'm going to take God out. God resists the proud. But he gives grace to the humble. And I am a person open. God, give me all the grace that you can give me. Because I know that I need you. I want you. The way of the kingdom is to submit ourselves, first of all, to the Father. And secondly, to each other. The way of the kingdom is to submit ourselves, first of all, to the Father. And secondly, to each other. You cannot do this Christian walk as a lone ranger. Even if you have a tonto. You're part of the body of Christ. There's no room for pride among us. We need each other. We build each other up. We walk with each other. The desires of the flesh, the desire of the eye, the pride of life, they're seduction. They're the siren song to love something else instead of loving the Father. And it always leads to death and destruction. Larry Petten wrote an article, a short article, Satan's Threefold Attack, taken from this context. And he says this, The lust of the flesh is the desire to do something apart from the will of God. The lust of the flesh, the desires of the flesh, is the desire to do something apart from the will of God. He said that the lust of the eyes, or the desire of the eyes, is the desire to have something apart from the will of God. The desire to have something apart from the will of God. And the third one, the pride of life, is the desire to be something apart from the will of God. It's all about my desire to do, my desire to have, my desire to be. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life. The first desire, the lust of the flesh, appeals to my body. The second one, to my soul. And the third one, to my spirit. Perhaps the most common manifestation of the lust of the flesh in our civilization is illicit sex, idolizing pleasure. Hedonism. Perhaps the most common manifestation of lust of the eyes is the excessive buying, materialism, idolizing possessions. Perhaps the most common manifestation of the pride of life is trying to control, idolizing power, egoism. Many have pointed out that 
The first temptation that we see in the scripture with Eve speaks to all three of these issues. When Satan tempted Eve, she saw the forbidden fruit was good for food. That's the lust of the flesh. You can eat every tree, but this one. But it looked good. I'd really like to taste that. And there's the, the, the lust of the eyes. It was the delight to her eyes. And then she saw it was desirable to make one wise, according to the serpent. It'll make you wise. That's the pride of life. When Jesus was tempted by Satan in the wilderness, what was the first temptation? If you're the Son of God, turn those stones into bread. He's been fasting. Bread might taste good. And then he shows him all the kingdoms of the earth and says, just bow down to me for a moment and I'll give you all of these kingdoms. Lust of the eyes. And then he encourages him, jump off the pinnacle of the temple and go down over past the wall. That, I mean, it's hundreds of feet. But the angels have been given charge over you. The pride of life. Look at this incredible miracle that you just experienced. A miraculous accomplishment. Be forewarned, forearmed. We will constantly face the temptation for the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eye, and the pride of life. They're common, you know, you're tempted in all ways. Well, there's no temptation come upon us as such as common to man. But God has provided a way out. And he would not allow you to be tempted more than you can handle. Because he gives you a way out. All you've got to do is take it. One positive note for this message. Because there is a positive note in this context. Thank the Lord for a positive note. Verse 17. The world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. Whoever does the will of God abides forever. He contrasts the temporary versus the eternal. This world as a planet and this world as a system of life is only temporary. It is fading. It's growing old. It's disintegrating. As I read the scriptures, it will be consumed with a fervent heat and there will be a new heaven and a new earth. Whatever you love in terms of this world, the physical world, the way of the world, it's here today and gone tomorrow. But whatever you love in terms of the Father is yours for eternity. Whatever works that you and I do in obedience to the Word of God that will last forever. We are not of the world. We should live our lives like Abraham did in the book of Genesis. He lived in tents for, Hebrews says, he was looking for a city whose maker was God. Looking for a city whose maker, now I'm not telling you to go live in the homeless camp in a tent, but what I'm saying is, don't put all your hope in that house that you're living in. It's temporary, but we have a permanent home that has been prepared for us in the place where we'll be with him forever and forever. 
Again, I'm not trying to tell you we shouldn't have money or possessions or a good time in this life. You should have all of those. But Jesus taught the way to have and experience the things that we need the most in this life is to seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. And all these things will be added unto us according to His wisdom and His power. Do not love the world or the things of the world. How do I keep from being seduced by these different things that are so common to man? I'm glad you asked. 2 Timothy 2.22. You can memorize this. 2 Timothy 2.22. 2 Timothy 2.22. So flee youthful passions and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. The first thing to do with temptation is flee. Don't stay in the temp- don't stay and watch it and I'm I'm going to I'm just gonna say no. I'm just gonna say no. I'm just gonna say maybe once. Secondly, instead of thinking about the temptation, pursue righteousness, pursue faith, pursue love, pursue peace, chase after it, track it down. Go after it and don't let it get away. And how long should I pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace? Till I go through the pearly gates, if there are pearly gates. Keep on pursuing. Keep on pursuing. There's a dynamic involved here I want you to see. If you spend all your time looking for sin and temptation to avoid, what are you going to find? Sin and temptation. If I spend all my time looking for righteousness, love, and joy, and peace, what am I going to find? Scripture says, those who hunger and thirst after righteousness shall be filled. Scripture says, if you seek me with your whole heart, I will be found of you. He's not playing hide and seek. He just says, come looking. And I'll be there. Draw near to me and I'll draw near to you. As we pursue righteousness and faith and love and peace, we'll find the presence of the Lord. There's nothing more precious than being in the presence of the Lord. Nothing. John warns us, do not love the world. Instead, love the Father. Instead, Love the Father. Stand as we sing together a prayer. Written by Laurie Klein. A long time ago.
that's where it all begins we don't love you because of who we are we love you because of what you've done for us and you loved us you loved us so much that you became one of us lived among us and offered yourself as a sacrifice that we might be reconciled with you we have been bought with the price, the precious blood of the Son of God. And Lord, our only proper response today is to say, I love you, Lord. I love you. I'd rather have Jesus than anything this world affords to me. But Lord, we run up against this this world that we live in that we're to be influencing and our heart is so susceptible and vulnerable to hearing those voices Lord I pray that the Holy Spirit today would do what the psalmist said search my heart O God and know my thoughts Lord if I have an area in my heart that I am getting out of balance there's some kind of lust of the flesh or the lust of the eyes or perhaps more vulnerable is the pride that can rise up in those of us who feel like we're spiritual. God, reveal it so that we can say, Jesus, I see that, I confess it, and I ask you to wash me, cleanse me with your precious blood. Because more than anything, I want to love you. And I want to follow your commandments to love my brothers. To love those around me and to be salt and to be light, making a difference in this world that you have sent us to. Oh God, that we would rise up as your ambassadors with the spirit of love because it's the spirit of love that causes the world to see there's something different about Christians. May that be true of us. So Lord, we purpose. Love is a choice. Love is an action. We purpose to love you first and foremost each and every day of our life by your grace. Thank you, Father, for that grace on each person here today and their families, those watching online. They experience fresh grace for this day, for this hour. As you lead us, you direct, you direct our steps. And Lord, help us to hear that voice that says, turn to the right, turn to the left, to walk in the center of your will. Thank you, Lord, that we know that we are going to abide forever. Abide forever. This world will pass away. Everything in it will pass away, but your word abides, and so will we. 
because you will come to take us to be where you are. Thank you for that hope today. Because that hope, we purify ourselves. Thank you for your blessing in Jesus' name. And everyone said? Amen. Amen. God bless. Have a great day. We meet again on Wednesday morning at 10 and Wednesday night at 7 for prayer.